Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. We're glad you're here. And uh, have you ever thought about whether or not Christmas songs and carols may be too simplistic for today's problems? At least that was a conversation that two young men were having in a bookstore. I just heard about this recently. One of them believed that Christmas songs don't have enough of what he called narrative tension. In other words, they were just sort of too happy, and that made them boring, like reading a book that had no conflict. Now think about that for a minute. He's making the assertion that Christmas carols are sort of like Star Wars, except without Darth Vader. They're sort of like Charlie Brown, except Lucy's not there to yank the football out at the last minute. That's what he's saying these Christmas carols are like. And I've got to be honest, some Christmas, I'm going to call them songs, they may be there. They may portray Christmas time as being sort of too light. Because just because December 25th rolls around on the calendar doesn't mean that all of our problems just instantly disappear, does it? There was a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention named Russell Moore. He wrote a blog about this. He said he called it the problem with our holly jolly Christmas songs. And uh, he makes some really good points. One thing he says is that if you look at the songs that immediately came right after the announcement to Mary that Christ was going to be born, what Mary proceeded to sing, Mary's song, was more like a war hymn. Uh, In that song, she said, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That song of Mary has some villains in mind. And then in the song of Simeon, another man, he'd he'd been waiting there for the, the coming of Christ, and he describes Christ's coming as the fall and rising of many in Israel. He said there'd be a sword that would pierce the heart of Mary herself. And even Christ coming as the light of the Gentiles still has a a connotation of darkness that had to be driven away by the coming of the light. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that we've been freed from the grip of the devil because of the coming of Christ. Moore goes on to say, in a time when we seem to learn of a new tragedy each day, and certainly what you heard Paul praying about at the beginning, what happened with all these tornadoes uh, in Kentucky At a time when we learn of a new tragedy each day, the unbearable lightness of Christmas seems absurd to the watching world. But even in the best of times, we all know that we live in a groaning universe, a world of divorce courts and cancer cells and concentration camps. Just as we sing with joy about the coming of the promised one, we also ought to sing with groaning that he is not back yet sometimes with groanings too deep for lyrics. You see, as age goes on, and as I've gotten older, it seems that also the problems that you and I have to deal with grow as well. And what we need is a joy at Christmas time that can handle the weight of the problem of life. Because it is difficult. And oftentimes what Christmas does is put a spotlight on the most difficult parts of our life. I need a powerful joy to overcome that kind of heaviness. What I want to talk about this morning then is how can I enjoy Christmas the way God intended? 
How can I enjoy it? A, a means of enjoying it that would transcend the right party, the right gift, the exact right family get-together. The passage I want to start out with this morning is in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read a very short section. Uh, I'll be reading other passages as we, as we go through this, this topic, but we'll start out with Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. We're continuing this morning through a series about season anthems, the anthems of Christ in our Christmas carols. A lot of times we sing these songs and we don't really think about deep, deep themes of theology that are in the songs themselves. So we're taking some time to do that right now. And the one I want to talk about this morning is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. I'd sung this song since I was a kid and frankly didn't have a clue what in the world it meant. What made these gentlemen so happy? Why were they merry? And why, if they're so happy, why, why do they need to rest? You know, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And this, the part of the carol I want to focus in on is these four lines. Remember Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about this carol a little bit more, and then I want to approach the subject this way. First of all, I'll talk about, well, what does Satan do? What is this power that he has? And then secondly, what did Christ accomplish against Satan's power? And then finally, how can we also rest Mary? We're going to figure out, well, what does that even mean, to rest Mary? So let's talk about this song for a moment. Uh, and it's an old one. As a matter of fact, it's one of the oldest Christmas carols we have. Not exactly sure how old it is. We know that Charles Dickens mentions this in A Christmas Carol, uh, and he, I think Ebenezer kind of bites at some people whenever he hears them singing, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And the song has got this interesting title. And to really understand the song, you have to put the comma in the right place. God Rest You Merry, comma, Gentlemen. The word Mary is not an adjective here describing the gentleman. As a matter of fact, this song is a little snarky. It's like a command. It's like an exhortation. It's, uh, it's uh, one guy saying to another, God rest you Mary, gentlemen or ladies, whoever may be listening. And it's this phrase, God rest you Mary. It's actually, it was a common expression back in the day. It was uh, used by the tutors. And to understand it, you've got to break it apart. First of all, that meaning of the word rest means to cause to continue, um, to remain. And then the word merry, we're familiar with that. It means pleasant or harmonious or happy. So if you put this together, you could title the song this way, Gentlemen, merry or otherwise, may God keep you in a pleasant state. In other words, God rest you merry means 
be pleasant, gentlemen. Rest pleasantly. Stay pleasant. Because when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you have no other reason not to be. The song explains itself in the lyrics because it raises the question, well, how will these people be made merry? Well, look at the lines. God, rest you merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Don't, don't let things bring you down. The hard stuff of life, don't let it crush you. Why? Well, remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to do what? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Now, that's the part I want to double down on for a little while. This idea of Satan's power. What is Satan's power? What is it that ca Satan is, is capable of doing? So three things he's capable of. First of all, he's an accuser. Satan accuses. And we see this, um, if we look in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It's looking at a future time, but listen to how it describes Satan in this verse. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now what's going on here? So we're looking at this future event. It's a time when Satan will finally be completely thrown out of heaven. He'll no longer have access to that heavenly place where God resides, the Father right now. And he's doing this work of accusing us before God relentlessly, day and night. And I think to even get a better picture of this, we've got to go back to the book of Job. Remember Job, this guy who suffered and suffered and suffered at the, seemingly at, at purely the hand of Satan. In Job chapter 1, um, Satan is speaking to God in verse 11 and says this, Stretch out your hand and touch all that they have, and they will curse you to your face. So what is it that the devil's doing? The devil is accusing you and I before God to say, the only reason Chad Cowan is faithful to you is because of all the good stuff you've done for him. See, if you take that all away, God, he won't be faithful to you. Same goes for the rest of them. And he accuses you. And he reminds you of your past. He doesn't want you to forget the stuff that God had to forgive you of. He does it day and night. And, and not only does he accuse us, but he also opposes God's work. He opposes God's work. One of the moments when Satan was probably working the hardest was when Christ was physically on earth. He put on humanity and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he's going to be led into the wilderness by Satan himself to be tempted. It was, it was part of the plan. Actually, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And Satan takes him up to a mountaintop. We see it here in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Just abandon the plan. I know your father told you to do this and that, but I'm telling you, I can give you a much better existence if you will just do what I'm telling you to do. All through the biblical narrative, Satan is trying to thwart the plans of God. It started right there at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. 
He showed up to entice this man and woman. Oh, you can be like God. Just, just eat that. I know he told you not to. He tries to thwart evangelism and, and missions on earth. That's why I was so thankful we could pray for L.J. Bailey today in this missions trip he's going on. Paul was going to encounter hindrance from Satan. Look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, 17 and 18. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. He is trying to stop the plans of God, however he can do it, sometimes in very, very strange ways. In this moment, he's doing evil deeds in our lifetime to disrupt and, and turn a culture against every Christian. You can almost just see it happen in front of your eyes. If he can turn every person in the culture against the Christians and, and so terrify them that they won't say a word about what they believe. And then thirdly, Satan enslaves. He enslaves. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. These Christians in Galatia were slaves to a bunch of traditions that had nothing to do with their faith in Christ. Jews would come in after Paul had visited a group of Christians in a place, and they would try to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying it's just too easy to just have faith in Jesus. You've got to do this and that and you know, you've, been, you've, got to be, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to do all these things if you're going to please God. And Paul's saying, look, that's not the case. You've got freedom in Christ. But these people were enslaved, even though they were Christians. Look at, look at the tone and the danger here. Look at down in uh, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul's saying, don't go back to that. These systems that the world has that are explained in scriptures, controlled by these demonic powers, demonic powers working through world governments and, and world leaders and trying to give you a worth and value that's apart from what God gives us. He's saying, don't go back to that. You were enslaved to that. You're not now. Don't start living as though that's still the case. You know, the truth is Satan is happy with anything you will put your faith in other than God. I often thought that, you know, people who uh, claim to be these Satan worshipers, they're out there. I remember Anton LaVey was a big voice back in the 80s and 90s and had the, the first church of Satan. Satan is less concerned with the Satan worshiper than anybody else on the planet. He's got them. He's got them right in his pocket. He doesn't care about them. He's going after the people who are making a difference in the kingdom of God. That's who he wants to take out. That's whose plans he's trying to thwart. Brothers and sisters, this, we're, we're the ones he's after. The truth is there's lots of ways he can enslave us. I'm going to mention one. This is probably a sermon unto itself, but I'm going to go ahead and, and mention it here anyway. There was a writer for the New York Times, I think it was right on the money, named Ross Douthit. He wrote an article about what he called the real threat to the human future. What is that? He goes on to explain. 
He said, it's the one in your pocket or on your desk, the one you might be reading this column on right now. He goes on to say that you are enslaved to the internet. He goes on to make this claim. Used within reasonable limits, limits, of course, these devices also offer us new graces, but we are not using them within reasonable limits. They are the masters, we are not. They are built to addict us, madness, distract us, arouse us, deceive us. We primp and perform for them as for a lover. We surrender our privacy, <coughs> excuse me, to their demands. We wait on tender hooks for every like. The smartphone is in the saddle, and it rides mankind. <clears throat> I think he's on to something. I have a smartphone. I use a smartphone. I'm trying to use it less because it is designed to enslave us. It is designed to keep us scrolling constantly. Just be aware. Give some limits on yourself because, again, Satan doesn't care what enslaves us as long as it's not God. <clears throat> so Satan is working these angles. I want to share with you one more uh, quote. This is from Wayne Gruden. He's a, he's a theologian. And he said this, Satan and other demons will also try to use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or any other means possible to hinder a, a Christian's witness and usefulness. He wants to take you out by any means necessary. So Satan accuses, he opposes God's work at every turn, enslaves us. So the question I want to talk about now is, well, what then did Christ accomplish? In regard to Satan's power, we saw it in the song, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. So what was it that Jesus did? Three things here as well. Because, see, where Satan accuses us, Christ does something different. Christ advocates Christ advocates. We see it in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what does that mean? This is a, this is a beautiful idea. Please stick with me here. See, when you and I sin, Satan is all too likely to want to keep that in front of the face of God, to remind God, look at what they did. And if he can do that to you, look at what you did, how bad you screwed up, the lives you messed up. But see, this is what Jesus does. He's doing the exact opposite. And in the heavenly courtroom, he comes to our defense. Remember, he lived on earth. Father, you know how hard it is for them to believe Father, I can tell you how hard it is to be human and be tempted. And he advocates for us. He comes to our defense even when we screw up. And when Satan was arguing against you in the courtroom of heaven, and he also wants to confound you with guilt and shame, Jesus says, nope, shut up, devil. He's mine. She's mine. They're forgiven. See, this reminds me of uh, when I was a kid, I used to go swimming, and we had this wave pool at our house, and I'd get out on this raft, and I'd be, I'm, I'm really fair-complected, in case you didn't know that concept, and just a contrast back there for my pasty whiteness. In any case, uh, I used to get these horrible sunburns on my back, and they would itch, 
And I mean, you, I couldn't reach it. If I did scratch it, it would just be like a searing pain. And the whole day at the, at the pool, my mom is constantly yelling, Chad, get back in here. You got to put on more sunscreen. Would you just? And I didn't do it. And then the morning after, I'd wake up and just be in misery. My mom would often get up. Definitely this, I remember, she got up early when I started having this, this agony. And she spent hours rubbing aloe on my back. You know, making sure it was, we just put everything in the house we had on this. My dad had a little different attitude. Dad knew exactly what happened. And he was on his way to work, and he just paused long enough to stick his head in the door and say, well, you know, those who don't listen have to feel. Okay, Dad, got it. By the way, just yesterday, what did I say to my son? Well, you know, if you don't listen, you got to feel. Just the role I play in this. Mom was the advocate. Even though she was the one that went through the pain of trying to prevent it, she was the one that also went through the pain of dealing with it after it happened. This is what Christ is doing for us. Advocating for us. We don't deserve it. But that's what he's doing nonetheless. He advocates for us. And then while Satan opposes the work of God, Jesus also disarms Satan. Jesus disarms Satan. We see it in the text we started with, Colossians. Through Christ's death and through his resurrection, then look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When this verse speaks of these rulers and authorities, it's referring to this um, this world system. In other words, Christ confounded the way the world does things. He applied proper value to what should have been valued. He demonstrated his love for us because he died for us. And he conquered the world system through the life that he lived. He showed us that material things weren't important. He showed us that loving each other is the Christian thing to do. Even those who want to kill us. As a matter of fact, the picture that this verse displays is something like this. It's a Roman general going out in front of a parade in a chariot, having just conquered the enemies. And I love what one commentator says. He says, The picture, quite familiar in the Roman world, is that of a triumphant general leading a parade of victory. To the casual observer, the cross appears to be only an instrument of death. It's true. But Paul represents it as Christ's chariot of victory. That he conquered the enemies of the Christian through the cross. Sin and death, the demonic powers that control this world. We still have to live in a broken world. But he disarmed the evildoers. And then again, let's look back at Job 1, uh, verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he is, has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. He's speaking of Job, saying, Satan, you're, I'm going to put limits on you. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God is, is telling Satan, Look, I'll let you do some. I know you want to prove your point. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that because this story is going to go on forever and I'll encourage other suffering Christians through the story of Job. But Satan, 
you're only going to go as far as the leash that I'm going to put on you. Because God is in control of the devil. And he says that you can only go so far. So keep that in mind. That he has disarmed the powers in this world and that he has limited this power of Satan. Now, I want to, I want to be clear on something. Just because God has limited the power of the devil doesn't mean we try to go start picking fights with the devil. Don't go to battle with Satan. We don't speak to Satan. We, we speak to God. Um, something that, that Moody said, Dwight Moody, I want to pass this on to you. He said, my friends, you are no match for Satan. And when he wants to fight you, just run to your elder brother was more than a match for all the devils in hell. So Satan accuses, but Jesus advocates. Satan opposes God's work, but God disarms the devil. And finally, Satan enslaves, but Christ frees us. Look at a few of these verses. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. For freedom, Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As much of the discussion in the New Testament about freedom was directed towards the rule keepers. The people who didn't realize that you could have freedom in Christ. Okay, I get this uh, grace thing, but you've got to keep these rules. Well, you know what? That's not what saves you. To please God, we stick to what he tells us to do. However, we are not saved by any of these things. Christ set us free from the law. And now we're forgiven and we're reconciled to God. As a matter of fact, when you hear someone talking about grace, if you don't walk away from that conversation thinking, okay, so no matter, like, no matter what I've done, Jesus still loves me and forgives me. If you don't scratch your head walking away from that conversation, you probably don't get grace. Because that's what it means. And Jesus has freed us from the accusations of the devil, from the fear of failure, from the fear of rejection, from the fear of God's wrath and punishment. You don't have to worry about God zapping you. Jesus paid the punishment of our sins. When he was in a Nazi prison cell a few weeks before Advent in 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran priest who was involved in an assassination plot against Hitler, he wrote to a friend and said, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. He said this. He said, it's not a bad picture of Christmas. And shortly after writing those words, the Nazis executed him. But he was right that that door of freedom for him and for us today is still open from the outside by the first coming and then also by the second coming of Jesus. So then enjoying Christmas the way God intended, an enjoyment that, that doesn't rest on being invited to the right event, the perfect family gathering, the perfect present. I want to go back to that phrase, God rest you, Mary. And just quickly, how can we also rest Mary now? Three, three ideas. First, by being free from accusation you're free from accusation. Whatever accusations may come at you from your own heart, from your own mind, you don't have to listen to them. 
because you've been freed from accusation. And in Romans 8, 1, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when the Father looks down on you, he sees his son Jesus. That's what the Bible means when it says you've been declared righteous. That in the second you came to saving faith in Christ, you were declared righteous. And God's not concerned with the bad stuff that's in your past or how you're going to fail today. So you're free from that accusation. Don't let Satan confound you with a complex of guilt because he'll try. And then secondly, these two go together. I want to beat this drum one more time. Free to be thankful and joyous. By one more time, I just mean for today. Be thankful and joyous. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want to be clear on this verse. All things work together for that which is good. Now, that doesn't mean the bad thing that happens is in and of itself good, okay? I just, I just lost my dad a few months ago. Me losing my dad, that's not a good thing. So what is good? However God is working through my grief and my family's grief, and how he's working through your grief after having just lost someone you love, and how you are coping with the grief perhaps of an abuser you've had to endure. That's how somehow in God's infinite sovereignty he is working out all things for that which is good. And that can give the Christian cause for thankfulness. It is uniquely Christian to be thankful for when even bad things happen. That is uniquely Christian. And then that can lead to joy. But you can't have one without the other. Nothing is outside of God's ultimate control. And those who know Christ can rejoice even when they're in prison because as Jesus says in Luke 10, 20, their names are written in the book of life. So if for a Christian, when we're thinking rightly about God, it leads us to thinking rightly about ourselves, and that leads to thankfulness and joy. So if I were going to put all this together, enjoy a thankful, joyous, guilt-free Christmas by trusting Christ's Satan-crushing work on the cross. Enjoy a thankful, joyous, guilt-free Christmas by trusting Christ's Satan-crushing work on the cross. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've, you have worked out. We thank you that simply by trusting you in faith that what you did on the cross it saves us from so much. It saves us from an eternity apart from you, but it also saves us in the here and now from all the fears that can confound us and enslave us. Instead, Lord Jesus, you give us freedom. Freedom to make decisions. Freedom to enjoy the, what you've created. Freedom to be called your child, to love others the way you love us. Freedom to forgive those who have wronged us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've got one more thing to sing, and then we'll have something else. Sam, go ahead. Here we go. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Let's do that again. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember 
Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Right on, man. Perfect. I hope that brought you comfort and joy. A couple of things very quickly. First of all, it is um, when we take the elder offering, there'll be some men at the back doors with plates. Uh, this is how we help out folks in our congregation who have, who have acquired some needs, and we want to help them out in any way we can. And then secondly, tomorrow night we are having an event here in the auditorium. It's a women's event. We could use some help moving some chairs around. If a few of you wouldn't mind sticking around so we could move out some chairs and move some tables in, it'd be greatly appreciated. Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday. And we'll see you next Sunday at 9.30. 9.30 next Sunday. Have a great day.